going on, nerds? This is Tasha McCarney, and I am here with our very first guest ever on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, Mike Barletta, Barletta, who is a associate professor of anesthesiology at the University of Georgia. He works on large animal and small animal, and we're going to talk through some cases today, and we're going to do a special focus on inhalant anesthesia. So welcome, Dr. Barletta. Uh, thank you. How's it going? Uh, very well, very well. So Dr. Barletta uh, reluctantly agreed to come onto the podcast. <laughs> he did not want to be a podcast guest, but I um, won him over with the promise of cocktails later. So let's That's dive right. into That's this. Right. Let's get it done and <laughs> let's go for a cocktail. Yes. Okay. So Dr. Barletta, mm -hmm. what I want to know is, I know you lecture a lot about inhalant anesthetics and you've done some research on inhalant anesthetics. You have a lot of knowledge in that. So what I want to know is if I have a general practice and I've been running on isofluorine and I'm thinking about I maybe need to switch to sevoflurane, is there really a benefit to switching to sevoflurane over isofluorine for most of our dog, cat, rabbit patients? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very good question. I don't think that is um, probably the best thing to do. Let's put it in this way. Um, a, say, a similar MAC, a same MAC, meaning that it's the MAC is the minimal velar concentration, right? That um, it's important, that number, because you, you can measure the potency of your inhalant. So a similar MAC, let's say a similar potency, Sibofluorine uh, and isofluorine do exactly the same thing. So, worst thing that they do is uh, depression of the cardiovascular system. So they cause hypotension mostly. And so, the MAC of um, isofluorine is about 1.4 in dogs. Sibofluorine um, uh, is about 2.3. And so, if we deliver this number, they will cause similar cardiovascular depression. So they're very similar. There are a few advantages uh, of SIBO versus isofluorine. However, sevoflurane is way more expensive. And so do we want to take, like, are, are these little advantages very important for us and we want to spend the extra money for it? That's, you know, up to uh, the practitioner or whoever using them. Right. So what I've heard from some people when I go into some practices is they may be interested in switching to SIVO because the thought is that patients wake up so much faster on SIVO fluorine. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Well, so this is one like one of the little advantages of SIVO versus ISO. I want to say that um, it is um, it's less uh, soluble in blood and so that means that it goes in and out of the brain faster than isofluorine so that means that yes they will fall asleep faster if you're using a face mask technique which is not highly recommended <laughs> i would not recommend to induce them but the theory is if you induce via face mask an animal it will get induced or general anesthesia will be induced faster with sevoflurane versus isofluorine and similar, uh, similarly, the same will happen uh, when they wake up. So if you are um, using sevoflurane and isofluorine, they will wake up faster uh, from uh, sevoflurane uh, if you are anesthetizing them for the same length, like for the same period of time. However, clinically, this faster, we're talking about 
minutes. So we're not talking about older anesthetics probably made sense. So there, you know, if you're talking about methoxyfluorine that is really, really soluble in blood and it's taking animals like 30, 40 minutes uh, to wake up versus our isofluorine that may, may, may take five minutes, uh, but maybe sevoflurane can take maybe three minutes. So we're talking about three versus five versus 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, if that is a important part of the uh, of the practice, uh, saving these few minutes and having uh, a quicker recovering, that makes sense switching. However, like switching meaning, means you switch all your vaporizers and the sevoflurane. That again, the cost is way more expensive. Um, like the sevoflurane is way more expensive than isoflurane. Okay, cool. So. On that same kind of thing, because you mentioned the uh, inhalant gases causing cardiac depression, is there any patient that you would try to minimize or even eliminate um, using inhalant anesthesia? So is there kind of any kind of cardiac disease where you would say, you know what, this might be a candidate for TIVA instead of using our inhalant anesthetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, mostly, and we do that routinely or daily uh, there at the University of Georgia. We see a lot of very sick patients and uh, um, usually are actually more than cardio, more than like animals with uh, cardiovascular disease um, are the animals that are um, septic or they have perforating foreign bodies, they may be septic, they have very sick GDVs or, acute abdomens. Uh, those are the ones that we are using. We use a lot of um, TIVA or injectable. And we might turn on the inhalants if they tolerate it. Some of them just don't tolerate it, so we can't. So we're just going to be all injectable. Uh, there are some animals, like when we anesthetize uh, third-degree V blocks as well, we tend not to use inhalants, at least until the um, um, the temporary pacemaker is in. Once the temporary, the temporary pacemaker is in, then we can turn the inhalants on because we can pace the, uh, the animal. Um, so there are definitely there are animals that cannot tolerate inhalants and for those who are gonna use injectable only or a lot of injectable and a little bit of inhalants if needed. Okay, so Aside from the pacemaker, let's say that I am a general practitioner. Mm -hmm. I'm working in um, rural Michigan. Shout out to Michigan. Um, I went to Michigan State, sorry. Okay. So say I'm working in rural Michigan. I have a GDV. The patient is really sick. Um, I don't have like Remy fentanyl or anything like that at my practice. I don't mm -hmm. even have fentanyl. Maybe I have hydro. Like what would be a good injectable protocol for a patient like that that's really sick that maybe I would want to be cautious with my inhalant? Mm -hmm. Well, we do that, uh, like we do this <laughs> routinely there uh, where I work. And um, so we, we normally like a to go protocol for this is an benzodiazepine with an opioid, usually CRI. So fentanyl is the way uh, we normally would would we use. But um, you know, if um, you don't have uh, fentanyl, hydromorphone can be used too uh, as a either boluses or it's been used as a CRI as well. Hydromorphone, so that can be used as well. And then either midazolam, diazepam again as a CRI. Um, very sick animal. Actually, you can. 
uh, induce and general anesthesia just with two these two drugs like an opioid and a benzodiazepine most animals though that is not uh, enough of course so we uh, need uh, maybe a ketamine CRI uh, would be used in that um, and sometimes we add uh, a lidocaine CRI so it would be a, a protocol that we could use it for this animal would be a, maybe a ketamine lidocaine um, fentanyl and midazolam CRI um, Today, sometimes if you need an extra, um, extra uh, drug just to have to dip in the, the plane of anesthesia, we can use propofol CRI. And so it's not unusual that these animals have four or five CRIs going on uh, because we are trying to avoid inhalants. And so what happens here, like once it's induced and we put all the CRIs and then let's say, um, it's not quite deep enough because the animal, you know, um, we see either there is some movement or the eyes um, roll back um, up and they, uh, there is some jaw tone or that um, uh, we see some cardiovascular response to the stimulation. At that point, we're going to try to turn the inhalants up uh, or on and we check the blood pressure. These animals, of course, have arterial lines, so invisible pressure. And so if we see that the pressures go down as we turn the inhalants on, we're going to turn it off and increase the CRIs. So. Right. Okay, cool. So you mentioned lidocaine, mm -hmm. which I'm interested in because I think that at least when I go into a lot of general practices, I don't see them utilizing lidocaine as far as a CRI or even as an injectable bolus. Like, when would you break out the lidocaine? What's a good candidate for that? All animals. All animals? <laughs> as, uh, unless you're a cat. I would not right. use it unless in a you're cat. A cat. Unless you're a cat, you don't get uh, lidocaine IV. But um, so lidocaine has a lot of interesting properties that we we uh, we want to take advantage of these properties it's an analgesic drug and it causes analgesia when we give it cri um increase the gi motility is a free radical scavenger um and um it has max sparing effect so it will decrease the inhalants so uh, we normally use it um like we start about two mix two three mix per keg and then uh, is a bolus and then we put them at two um, milligram per kilogram per hour um all horses they go under general anesthesia we uh we use lidocaine cri for this reason so we can keep it'll help uh, to keep the inhalants down um and most of our dogs they do uh, we, we put them on lidocaine cri as well I mentioned not cats. Um, there, are, there are a few studies that I think came out from, I'm sure they came out from UC Davis where, um, you know, they looked at the, um, the amount of lidocaine that we need to, in order to decrease the MAC of inhalants. And that amount of lidocaine actually causes cardiovascular depression in cats. So for that reason, most of us, most of anesthesiologists will not use lidocaine CRI in cats, IV. Um, but um, I would use it for um, if I see arrhythmias in a cat, but not just for sparing effect and analgesia and, and GI motility and so on that we talked about. Right. So, and the other benefit, I think, again, if I'm in that rural practice in mm -hmm. Michigan, uh, lidocaine is pretty cost effective as well. Oh, yeah. Very cheap. So if we're talking about drugs where we're going to get the most bang for our buck, like ketamine is fairly cost effective, lidocaine very cost effective. And if we're really looking at just 
opioids. Opioids. Um, you know, I know that a lot of people don't use morphine as much, but morphine is pretty cost effective when it comes to an opioid. It if is. you are looking at the cheapest option. It is. Um, with morphine, we uh, ex- just experienced a big back order. I don't know where we're at now. We're, we're still getting it some. It's not the concentration we were used to get the, the 15 milligram per ml with the preservative in it. Um, but we still get it. I think we, uh, um, we're getting it through the hospital. But I know there are practices out there that are still having trouble getting morphine. Mm-hmm. And okay. So we... Mostly we're using hydromorphone, which is not very expensive either. It's pretty cost-effective, hydromorphone. So. Okay. I mean, as compared to, like, fentanyl. Because I know a lot of clinics, um, you know, some of the smaller clinics that I go into, you know, again, in the middle of Pennsylvania, in the yeah. middle of Michigan, they're probably not going to be buying fentanyl. Right. Um, or they don't want to keep that level of drug on the shelf. So if they have hydro, that's still a great option for them mm-hmm. for these really sick, you know, GDBs, pyometras, septic abdomen patients that come in. Yeah. Right. Okay, great. So thanks so much for being of reluctantly course. on this podcast and talking about anesthesia <laughs> and pain management and how awesome lidocaine is, except in cats. Um, now let's go get some cocktails. Sounds good. Let's let's do that. Let's okay, do that. excellent. All right, we'll see you later, nerds. Okay, bye.